0: Okay, great. I'm glad you're here. Um, so, like I mentioned so many times, the, the, the name of this class is called um, Living with God, Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. And um, the reason why I called it that is actually based on a, a, something that I heard Rabbi Green say many years ago. He said that the classic um, movie, Romance, it's like, the boy sees the girl, he gets the girl, he loses the girl, and then at the end he gets the girl again. And then the movie ends. And I heard Rabbi uh, Green say, that's when I want to start watching. When he finally gets her, that's when I want to start watching. So, so basically the parallel with, with, with our lives is that, is that we have God and God has us. Now what? You know what do you bless you what do you, what do you do now what what's the living with God part now that you have each other now what so so I once described this um this series of talks as uh, couples therapy between us and God you know because basically it's it's a very complicated relationship even if things are going great it's still on some level a complicated relationship and it's our primary relationship in the world because uh, the world can take absolutely every single thing from a person. But they can take away your relationship with God. A person can be in solitary confinement in the middle of a, the, the deepest, darkest dungeon, and you still have your relationship with God. That cannot be taken away. So, so if that is your primary relationship in life, then working on that and making sure that that's really good is absolutely essential. And also it ties in with having just a good life. So, so there are many, many benefits to making sure that our relationship with God is, is in a good place. So, so what I want to do is explore the following premise, and um, we'll we'll sort of get to this later on in the talk. We'll really have to build to this, but just so you know where we're going, the idea is that God saves us all of the time. Every single moment we're being saved by God. Every single moment. But God saves with the word yes, And God saves with the word no. And we're going to see how that develops. But first, I want to start with the whole notion. You know, we've been talking about um, the Garden of Eden a lot. And I want to go back to the Garden of Eden to explain something from this uh, last week's Parsha, Parsha's Chukas, which is the whole notion of the Paraduma. The Paraduma is Hebrew for the ashes of the red heifer. So this was a special mixture that was made with um they would burn down a, a red heifer red cow, basically, that didn't have couldn't have more than two hairs that weren't red on it. And it had to be like two years old or older. So this is this is very, very rare. There have only been a few of these in the history of, of the world. And we've been waiting like hundreds or thousands of years for the next one. In fact, I read an article in The New Yorker that there are some Christian, um, believing Christian ranchers in Texas who have like a very high-tech ranch, like the husbandry is is the science of mating animals and things like that for agricultural use. And they have like the most advanced husbandry studies in the world, in Texas, for cattle. You know, that's cattle country. And some of the um, religious Christian ranchers down there have been working on getting... A red heifer, in terms of cross breeding and things like that, and they haven't gotten it yet, but you should know that there are aspects of the world, even outside the Jewish world, who are trying to get us this red heifer back and every once in a while you read in the in the uh on the news that there is a red heifer's been born, but it's got to stay all red into the second year, and so that's that's um that's where it gets complicated, and um you know. Because this is, this is one of the rules, this is one of the rules of, of what constitutes, quote-unquote, a red heifer. So, wh- why? Because they, no, 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 they, they also believe in Mashiach, you know, and the redemption of the world. They have a slightly, you know, they have a, they have, they have a caste member we don't have, um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but they, they have a, a similar idea of the world being redeemed and rectified. And um, and sort of we play into their story also, so they're trying to help us out. And okay, so but whatever it is, whatever it is, um, the red heifer plays a role. And the reason is because the red heifer, this mixture that's made with waters and the ashes of the red heifer and red string and hyssop <coughs> and some cedar, all these things mixed together, um, removes the impurity of death. But it's a way out idea, just like death itself is a way out idea, because whoever prepares this mixture, which removes ritual impurity, becomes ritually impure. So this is this is one of the great paradoxes. In fact, it's the classic paradox, or to use the language of the Torah, Cholk. Chok means beyond which the rational mind can grasp. It's the great chok of the Torah. And, um, and so that's the beginning. That's the beginning of Parsh's Chukas. Now, Rashi says something very fundamental. Rashi brings down the teaching that the paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer, is coming to fix the sin of the golden calf. So, On the most basic level, we see a parallel between the two. You have a calf, which is also a cow. The sin of the golden calf. That's a thats a cow right there. And then the paraduma is a cow. So it says the mother is coming to clean up the mess that the child made. Okay. But obviously it's much deeper than that. So the connection is, is that the sin of the golden calf. And I'm going to sort of like just cut to the essence of it right now. The sin of the golden calf, the reason why it was so terrible, was because we used our logic, our rational minds, to decide how we were going to serve God. In other words, we decided to make ourselves the final arbiters to what we have to do in this world, as opposed to that which is beyond us, which is the will of God himself. So this is, this is a very fundamental distinction. You see, something that everyone has to understand, when it comes to idol worship, there's something much deeper about idol worship than people appreciate. What most people think is so terrible about idol worship, and this is also terrible, is that you take a statue, or whatever it is, and you say, that's God. And then we say, well, wait a second, that isn't God. God is much bigger than that. In fact, God even made that, right? But there's something much much more insidious, much more toxic going on with idol worship. And that is that really what we're doing is we're making ourselves God. We're formally sort of saying, well, that's God, and it really isn't God. But the, the deeper spiritual sort of dynamic is that we are making ourselves God. So once you appoint yourself God, then that's the, that's the ultimate no, right? And how do we do that? What's How do we make ourselves God by saying that, you know something, God, I'm going to follow you to the extent that I agree and that it makes sense to me because I have the last word, not you. So this is, you know, this this basically is the core of our existence in this world. Are we ready to turn to God as the ultimate authority or not? That's kind of what it boils down to. So the sin of the golden calf said, no, <laughs> we're, we're holding the keys. We'll stay in control. God, we love you. And to the extent that, you know, we can make you happy, great. But the final word is with us. So, so that's a problem. David, didn't you say yesterday two golden statues the... Okay, so, so, so Bernie, Bernie wants to bring out another point that we were discussing earlier which is that if you say if you say that um, the problem with the golden calf was that it was a statue, and that it was a golden statue, well, we had two golden statues in the Holy of Holies. We had two angels, the Kruvim, which were sitting on top of the Aaron the Ark that held the tablets, the Luchos from Harsinai, with the Ten Commandments on them. We had... Two golden angels on there. Now, according to the rules of the Torah, that's very problematic. And it's in the holy of holies, no less. So what's the difference between those two golden angels and the golden calf? Very simple. God asked us to make those, and he didn't ask us to make the golden calf. A giant, huge difference. So in other words, in other words, Again, it underscores the point that that we, that we made previously. That we decided how we were going to serve God. Okay. But again, we were using our rational minds. What makes sense to us? So the rational mind... Let me try to present it in this form. The rational mind represents the finite. Why? Because we can only grasp so far. God, who makes our minds is beyond the finite. God is the infinite. So the paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer, which we can't grasp with our brains, because it's beyond our brains, that represents the infinite. That represents God. So now let's revisit that Rashi that says that the ashes of the red heifer are coming to fix the golden calf. What it means is the infinite is coming to free ourselves and to cleanse ourselves of the finite. Imagine, imagine you go to a doctor, and you say to the doctor, um, you know, this is bothering me, or whatever it is, and the doctor says, um, well, let's do some tests. And the doctor does some tests, and the doctor says, well, okay, good news, bad news. The good news is we found it. The bad news is you have such and such a thing. The good news is, we actually have some medicine which can treat that thing. And then you say, okay. Most people would say, fantastic, thank God. You found it, we've got some medicine which is going to fix it. Give me the medicine. That's, that would be a normal person. Now, can you imagine if someone says, how does the medicine work? Because if I don't understand how the medicine works, I'm not taking the medicine. And now let's say you weren't able to understand how the medicine works. But the doctor is saying, take the medicine. The medicine works. Excuse me. Excuse me. I'm a very rational person. (laughs) I'm not going to take medicine that I don't know exactly how it works. So, so, so the infinite, the infinite, that which our mind cannot grasp, but is real and is there, is coming to fix the limitations that are there. And it's coming to put us in sync with that place which is beyond us and which is all around us. Okay. I'll tell you a a story from my own life. When my son was... uh, When my first child was born, um, you know, I guess this is especially true of new parents and everything like this. You know, you have to decide when you're going to give your child certain foods. When he gets real food as opposed to just milk and all sorts of things, and then you're supposed to introduce new foods one at a time in case there's an allergy, so then you'll be able to isolate it immediately and you won't be confused. So there's a whole program of how you feed a child when the child is first born. So anyway, so this was a big day for us. Um, Our first son had reached the age that we wanted to give him chocolate ice cream, you know, so we knew that this is like a, this is a big deal, this is chocolate ice cream day, you know, so... So we we take out a little dish and we put in some chocolate ice cream and we put it on the spoon and we go to give it to him and he won't have it. He refuses to have it. And we're like, because he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what ice cream is. He doesn't know what chocolate is. And we're like, take this. And he's like, no. And we're like, it's chocolate ice cream. (laughs) But he doesn't, you know, from his rational standpoint, it just looks like, Brown gooey weirdness. Like, why do I want that? And it's like so we just shoved the spoon in his mouth and he was like, Ah, give me more, you know? <laughs> so So in a little in a little way that's a lot like the mitzvahs, you know? We're like, well, could you please explain to me why I should shake this Lulavan It doesn't seem to be very logical. Shake the Lulavan Esther. <laughs> this is good. This is gonna do good things for the whole universe. Okay, it's beyond your rational comprehension. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. So so now, I want to transition into this next point. So, you could ask the question, and I think it's a very fair question to ask. It sounds like on some level, we're saying, well, listen, you know... Just do it. Don't ask any questions. Don't bother to understand this. And that, you know, as much as we laugh and say it in a nice way, if that's the point, that's very problematic to many, many people and many, many good people and many, many caring caring people, you know? So, you know, I'll tell you something, a a story that I heard recently. Uh, a, A very wonderful, fantastic, brilliant, Brilliant, brilliant rabbi was in town recently, and he he told the following story. He said that he was at um, Oxford, I believe, maybe it was Cambridge, and um, he was with the like the top student there, one of the top students there. And this top student was Jewish, and the rabbi was going to give some sort of talk to you know, and this is like a super elite group of intellectuals, you know, this is you know this is one of the finest schools in, in the world, and the. Um, this top top student comes up to uh, comes up to the rabbi and he says, "I just want you to know something. I am a militant atheist." Right? He's Jewish. This student. I'm a militant atheist, and the rabbi responds, "That's fantastic! I am so happy. This is such a great day." And so the student was like a little freaked out, like wait a second, what? Why? And the rabbi says, "Finally." Finally, someone can absolutely prove to me that God doesn't exist. And so he sort of like took a step back to the student and said, "Well, I don't know that I can prove to you absolutely that God doesn't exist." So the rabbi says, "That's so." He says, "So you're more like what, like a militant um, agnostic?" And the guy says, "Yes." And he says, "That's great." That is great, I'm so happy. And the student is like, You know why? And he says, Because someone can finally prove to me that it's impossible to prove that God exists, <laughs> so he was like, well <laughs> maybe uh maybe I can't do that either and then the i then later on in that program or that day, whatever it was, they had to they had to do something or make a blessing or a bench or whatever it was. There was some, some sort of mitzvah opportunity to be had at that event. And the student came up to the rabbi and said, okay, I'll do it. But you better explain to me exactly what what it means. Because I'm not going to do it unless I understand what it is. And that's a beautiful thing. Because people do need to understand why they're doing what they're doing. People do need to understand it. But what so no one, wants to be, no one wants to be forced into doing something that they don't understand. That's, that's, that's for sure. Especially a thinking person. See, but the problem is, is that so often, I'll tell you, um, so often people think that they understand what the reason is for something. And they haven't had it explained properly to them. And then they reject the thing, based on an improper understanding of it. So I'll give you an example. So there's a joke that I heard uh, from Rabbi Green many years ago that underscores this point, I think, nicely. And uh, back in Eastern Europe many years ago, it was a great delicacy to have um, blintzes. And so a poor man says to his wife, you know, one time before I die, i just like to have blintzes. And his wife says, absolutely, I'll make you blintzes. I'll tell you what, look, I'll make up the shopping list. I'll give it to you. You go out and get this stuff. I'm going to make you blintzes. So the man says, great. So she says, well, we're going to need some cinnamon. He says, cinnamon? Do you know how much cinnamon costs? I can't afford cinnamon. She says, OK, well, some raisins. Raisins? There haven't been raisins in this town in months. She says, OK, and she ticks off all these things. He he can't get them or he can't afford them or whatever it is. She says, OK, we'll get some flour. He says, I can get you some flour and some water. I can get you some water. So she makes, to the best of her ability, she makes blintzes, right? And she serves it to her husband. He takes a bite and he goes, you know, I really don't know what rich people see in blintzes. <laughs> so he thinks he's eating blintzes. He's not eating blintzes. What happens is, and this is sort of a tragic thing in terms of our generation and the previous generation and everything like this, People think they're experiencing Judaism. It tastes really plain or outright bad. And they go, what do I need this for? And they think that they've experienced what it is. So they think that when they've rejected it, they've made an informed decision. So this is very tragic. This is very, very tragic. because. So this is why people need something explained to them. And sometimes re-explain to them. And so all that is very good and and, and, and and fine. However, however, there's the other side that we were discussing initially. The other side is is that there is a God and He gave us a Torah. And this is why the world was created. This is why we were created. And so we have to connect with it. And so so I was talking this this week, with someone about mourning, about losing a loved one, um, my parents, both my parents uh, left the world uh, a few years ago, I guess it's about 11 years for my mom and about three years for my dad, and um, she wanted to know what's, from a, from a personal standpoint, what, what, is, what is the Jewish view of mourning? So to the extent that I could answer it, I, I tried to help and um, somehow this popped into my head while we were talking. Because she said to me, you know, I was talking about how the, the soul ascends from the body and, and the whole the whole sort of cosmic map of, of life and death and the, the world beyond this world and, and the whole kind of Jewish view. And she said to me, you have a lot of faith. And I said to her that faith actually has nothing to do with it. And... The example that sort of came in the moment was, imagine someone's cooking chicken soup in the kitchen, and there's a covered pot with chicken soup in it in the kitchen. And you walk into the kitchen, and you can ask yourself the following question. Does it take faith to believe that there's chicken soup in the pot? Well, not really. Because there's either chicken soup in the pot or there's not chicken soup in the pot. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you believe there's chicken soup in the pot or not. It's either in the pot or it's not in the pot. It's either true or it's not true. This is... And now we're going to get deep. This is something that many people make a mistake with. Even believing knowledgeable people, because it's a very, very spiritual point that that we're going to make right now. And I don't think people do this on purpose, but I think that this is a real thing. Many people think that their believing in God wills God into existence. In other words, my Act of believing in God creates the reality of God. And if I don't believe in God, then God isn't there. But my believing in God creates the existence of God. Now, again, I'm not saying people do this on purpose or rationally, necessarily. But there's an emotional logic to that. That I create the existence of God through my belief in God. What's the truth? God exists whether you believe in Him or not. You can absolutely not believe in God, and God is 1000% there. You can believe in God, and God is still 1000% there. You can believe that there's no chicken soup in the pot. There's chicken soup in the pot! (laughs) It's either true or it's not true. It's a reality that's independent of whatever you're thinking. You know, there's a famous um, phrase, which is that man plans and God laughs. Meaning, God's going to do what God's going to do. Now, of course, we, our prayers are very meaningful to God, and the mitzvahs that we do are very meaningful to God to God, and that can even sort of change our destiny on some level, or how we received wherever we're meant to go. We can go in various different ways, different directions. We can, as they say in the uh, police shows, we can do this the hard way or the easy way, right? A lot of that is dependent on us, right? And, And our level of attachment, right? But at the same time, God is there regardless. Okay. So, so, so what's important, what's important to understand is that belief in and of itself is very, very, very important, but it isn't the final step in the process. God is either here or he isn't here. Just one or the other. So how do we know, just on a very simple level, it's obviously a giant subject, but just on a very simple level, how do we know that God is absolutely 100% here, and 100% exists? Because I wouldn't exist if God didn't exist. I, where would I get my reality from unless there's a God? And we know if God were to withdraw His presence from the world, the example always to picture is like a, a room with no windows, the light is on. If you, if God removes His presence from the world, it's like switching off the light switch. All of existence becomes nullified. Everything, all of existence disappears if God withdraws His presence from the world. So the very fact that I exist is proof that God exists. There's a one-to-one correlation. Okay. So now, now we have to understand something. Which is that amuna belief, is very, very, very important. And it plays a big role in our spiritual life. But, God's existence is not contingent on my belief in Him. He exists no matter what. So now, let's revisit this person who needs to have everything explained to them rationally. So that's a very honored person, and that's a very special person. But they also have to accept that whether they believe it or whether they understand it, God still exists and He still has His Torah. So again, it's not contingent on our understanding it when all is said and done. It doesn't like we don't, we don't, we're not the ones who. Green light the Torah. Like, okay, you know, Torah's pretty good. It's been around for thousands of years, very good. I'm afraid I can't sign off on it. Well, you know what? Mazel (laughs) It's still here, and at the end of the day, we're still going to be asked the question about what our relationship was with it. You know? So, that's what it is. So, there's a certain aspect of humility that every single person has to have, which is that we're not bigger than God. And that's, that's tough. That's really tough. And I'll tell you especially why it's tough and why it's even tougher now than it's ever been really in history. And this is sort of my analysis, but stay with me. The system of government that we've had throughout human history has been for the most part a monarchy. We've had a king or a feudal lord or whatever it is, And what that king or feudal lord says goes. That's what it is. And you understand there's an an individual with a final authority, and that's reality. You're either on the right side of the king, or you're on the wrong side of the king. And this is the way people lived for thousands of years. Okay, all of a sudden comes a huge revolution in in government called democracy. Democracy says, hey, I've got a vote, and you, the ruler... You don't have the last say. We, the people, have the last say. We are the final arbiters. And so there's, and I'm not saying that democracy is a um, a, a bad system, obviously. Although it's worthwhile to note, it's worthwhile to note, through my college education pays off, that the, to the ancient Greeks, and it's either Plato or Socrates or both, the ultimate ruler, and remember, that's in Athens, and that's at, the, that's at the time of the birth of democracy, right? Although it sort of fizzled out, and we went into monarchies, you know, forever after that. So, they understood democracy. Their thing was the philosopher king. That was their ultimate ruler, and they understood democracy back then. But these, probably the greatest secular minds in human history... They thought, no, you want the wise individual ruler. That's the ultimate that's the ultimate form of government. So that's just worth keeping in mind. The problem is is that we've seen so many abuses with dictatorships over the years that for us to put faith into a single individual, just it's been so systematically discredited over so many centuries, it's hard for us to buy into that. You know, so, and let's say you get a good ruler, an inspired philosopher king. Let's say you find one. What about his son? You know, I mean, he'll probably be a moron, you know. So, I mean, you know, and then you're, you're, you're back into the old system again. So somehow, democracy seems to be a pretty good check and balance to that. However, let's talk on a spiritual level right now. On a spiritual level, we've been conditioned away from the notion of an ultimate authority, And we've been conditioned to think that the last word and truth itself is in the hands of the people on an individual basis. We've grown up in that culture. We've breathed that air. And it's affected how we think about authority in general. Especially divine authority. There's been a transference. We think that the Torah itself is sort of like a holier, more special version of the United States Constitution. This is what we think emotionally, even if we haven't formed the thought in our brain. And we think that, well, wait a second. We have the right to decide what the thing is. And the truth is, the truth is, is that we have something called the Torah al Peh, which means that the halacha really is, the, the way, the, the understanding of what we're supposed to do really does get filtered through us, so we are part of the Torah. We really are part of the Torah. And it has to come through us. But it comes through us while we defer to the ultimate set of principles, which are from God. So there is a very beautiful, honored, uh, integral role to the people. However, our final sign-off is not necessary for the project to go forward. That's the point. Okay. So now, I want to continue to go deeper and get back to this essential relationship between the idea of the paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer, that which cannot be comprehended is coming to fix the golden calf, the limitations of our rational understanding of everything. In other words, the infinite is coming, the paraduma being the infinite, that which, be, that which is beyond us. The infinite is coming to cleanse the finite. To liberate us from the shackles of our own mortality. Because what did we say? We said that the red heifer comes to remove the impurity of death. You see, because there's a certain impurity to to, to limitation. What I mean by that is, I'll give you the most sort of silly... Example. How does how does limitation ultimately breed impurity? Well I say take a bath. And you say not so much. <laughs> I say, really? You gotta take a bath. And you're like, No. Not into baths, not into washing, not into showers. Into nature. I'm into nature. <laughs> okay, well, That's good. Days, weeks, months pass. Brother, listen, I love you, but you've got to take a bath. Sorry. Into nature. Not into washing. Okay, so you can see that this person who has a mental block with washing, his his limitation is going to breed impurity. So, So, a person has to be liberated from the false walls, which can be rationality, which can be lack of understanding, whatever it is. They have to be liberated from just the bonds of their own understanding in order to participate that which which exists beyond them. So, again, this is how the Parajuma is coming to fix the sin of the golden calf. The infinite is coming to cleanse the limitations of the finite. So where do we see this again? So at Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai when we accepted the Torah, it says that we returned back to the state of Adam and Chava before they ate from the tree of knowledge. We know that when they ate from the tree of knowledge, they brought death into the world. When we were at Mount Sinai, we reached this place and we became immortal. When the sin of the golden calf came, our mortality and death came back into the world. It says a very amazing thing. Part of our tshuva process, part of our kind of trying to fix our relationship with God after the sin of the golden calf was, it says, we took off our jewelry. And the Ramban explains this as we gave up our immortality that we had achieved. That was, that's an amazing concept. But the point is, is that the sin of the golden calf brought death back into the world. So now we can revisit this notion that the paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer, which Im- removes the impurity of death, is coming to fix the sin of the golden calf, which brought death back into the world. Now, let's look at the tree of knowledge. It says the tree of knowledge brought death into the world. There's a certain type of knowing, quote-unquote, which brings death into the world. So what is this? So when I first got married, Reb Shlomo Shlomo Karlovak blessed my my wife and I that, that we should always surprise each other. And what he meant by that was that we should always discover new things about each other. Now, the other side of that is that many relationships fall apart because you decide that you know, quote-unquote, the other person. You know what? I already know you. I already know that you're going to do that. Why do I even have to ask you a question anymore? I already know what you're going to say. If you, quote-unquote, know another person too much, a certain death enters into that relationship. So now let's make this very, very personal between us and God. Many of us decide that we know God. And we say, God, you know what? I already know you. I already know the way you run the world. I already know what you do. A certain death enters into our relationship with God when that happens. When we decide that we know God. How can we know God? How can we know God? The very thought is absurd. The very thought is absurd. You know, we have to liberate ourselves from this notion of knowing God. And one exercise that I would suggest is asking yourself the question do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? But I mean exactly. Can you write down exactly on a piece of paper every single thing that's going to happen tomorrow? In fact, you know what? It's already about 1130. Can you write down exactly everything that's going to happen today? In fact, can you write down exactly everything that's going to happen in the next one hour? So when you ask yourself that question in a very cut and dry black and white kind of way you realize well wait a second i i don't know what's going to happen one minute from now if i want to be honest so do i know god hey, i don't even begin to know the way the world gets run i don't even begin to know the way the world gets run i'm going to run i'm going to run out to carvel and get some ice cream and i bump into someone oh i'm very sorry hey oh you're Oh, you just moved in here? Oh, you just moved into the neighborhood? Oh, great! Yeah. Do I know where? Where that? Yeah, that's just down the. Oh yeah, you know. I, in fact, you know what? I'm going to that place too. I also have to get something. Oh, where do you? I live across the street. That's a, and and cut to, Mazel Tov! You're getting married. You know. <laughs> I thought I'm getting ice cream, and what I'm doing is I'm getting married, right? So do I know? Do I know one minute from now what's going to happen? So what's the point? The point is is that I have to properly see, you know, if you're watching a western, you go to the movies, and you're watching a western, and you think this is like, you know, I thought I was seeing Transformers too. It's supposed to be this big action movie. And um, this movie is in black and white. And it's like two guys on horses. They've got little guns. I thought they were really <laughs> big guns. And they've got these little guns. Transformers is really a lousy movie. You're not at Transformers. <laughs> you walked into the wrong theater. If you think that you know, you have to know where you are. If you're in a place of being constantly surprised, which is this world, which is all of our lives, and we've decided that not only am I not constantly surprised, but that I know everything, then it's very hard to enjoy the surprises as they come. Because you use words like how do you then address the sort of the cognitive dissonance of thinking that you constantly know when you realize you constantly don't know? Oh, well, we have a very special toxin for that. It's called the word coincidence. <laughs> you say, oh, I had this coincidence. That way I can stay in this Western while I'm not enjoying Transformers, you know. And there's this, oh, what are the odds of that happening, you know. And you constantly dismiss what the actual reality is, which is that new things are constantly happening. Or new variations of the old things. So this is injecting life back into our relationship. This is solving the tree of knowledge, the knowing, the death that knowing, quote unquote, how it, how it, how it affects our relationship with God by, by understanding the real reality that we don't know God. We get past this tree of knowledge aspect with our relationship with God and we inject our relationship with surprise, because God is surprising us all the time. But you know what? If, unless a person is willing to be surprised, it's hard to surprise the person. Can you imagine, like um, can you imagine uh, you play in a big surprise party for a loved one? And you get these people, and you fly people in, and all sorts of things, right? Because look, when you run into people in the street, they've often come from another country. They've been flown in for you, okay? Okay, so you just met them for five minutes on the corner. But they were flown in for you, on some level, because a person has to live life thinking the whole world is for me, on some level, right? So, So anyway, you fly people in, you've got a whole surprise party, and your loved one Who doesn't know, you've kept it a secret, miraculously, no one spilled the beans. The person walks in, everyone yells, surprise! And the person goes, hi everyone, nice to see you. And then they walk into their room. (laughs) And they come out, they talk with some people. Well, that's sort of a drag, isn't it? It's like a big drag, right? But how many of us does that describe? Every day is a surprise party, and we're, like, walking in like, yeah, uh uh-huh, whatever. (laughs) And how great and loving is God that he continues to plan the next surprise party for us. He doesn't say, you know what, you are such an ingrate. I'm, like, tired of you already. He doesn't do that. He goes, okay, let's see What's the next surprise going to be. It's going to be great. I'm going to send him his second grade teacher. That's going to be awesome. You know? He hasn't seen her for 30 years. So a person has to be willing, has to be on board. You've got to be on board, you know? You're at a party, you might as well put on the party hat, you know? Like, because that's what it is. So, so now now I want to go to the next step. And this is really, I mentioned this at the very, very beginning of the talk, and we'll close with with this idea. I said that God saves us with yes, and God saves us with no. Now, there's a very big miracle In uh, Parshas Chulkas, that no one really talks about. I basically really never hear it discussed. Okay, but it's in the Torah, and it's a giant miracle. And the miracle is the following, um, and uh, it's in chapter uh, twenty-one of Bamidbar, Parshas Chulkas. And um, and it's recorded. It's one of the cooler lines in the whole Torah. It's recorded, it says, in the Book of Wars of Hashem. There was a book that existed called the Book of Wars of Hashem. That's been lost to us. And, anyway, I think that's a movie in and of itself. Let's find the Book of Wars of Hashem. Like, imagine what's in there, right? Anyway, there's... um, so this miracle is celebrated in the Book of Wars of Hashem, as it says in the Torah here. That's uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 14. And then there's a whole long poem that celebrates the miracle that I'm about to describe to you. That's that's recorded in the Chumash. So, so what was the miracle? So the Jews were about to pass through a very long mountain pass. It was... Um, a a, a valley between two mountains. And, um, And what the Jewish people didn't know was that lining the cliffs on both sides were soldiers and that there was a surprise ambush that was about to take place against the Jews. That they were going to throw down spears and throw down rocks and there was going to be a giant massacre of the Jewish people in this narrow, like, valley between these two mountains. What happened? What happened was Hashem made a miracle before we entered into this narrow passageway, and He brought these two mountains together and sealed off this alleyway so that we couldn't go in there. And it says a river of blood came out. And that blood was to tell us that a miracle had been done for us so that we understood that there were all these soldiers that had been lying in wait for us and that God had saved us from them. Now, the Torah then goes on and it compares it and you can see it in, um, you can see it spelled out explicitly in the Rashi and the, uh, and in the Baal torah the various sources. Um, the Torah then goes on to compare this miracle to the splitting of the Sea of Reeds, Kriyas Yamsuf. Now, now it's a very, very beautiful comparison between these two things. And just think about it visually and thematically for a moment. When the Red Sea split, there was a miraculous opening that took place for us when this happened, this was in Arnon, a place called Arnon, two mountain ranges came together and closed, stopping us from going in and thereby saving our lives. Okay? So, one of them is like the splitting of the Red Sea is when we really desire something in life and in opening comes for us it's like a yes it's like we get the yes we wanted to go in that direction and it was hard and didn't seem like it was going to happen but although all of a sudden the red sea splits and we get our yes and we're able to go through but then that's the miracle of the yes right that's the one that we're all accustomed to and the one that we usually pray for right But then there's the equal miracle because the Torah itself equates these two events. There's the equally miraculous no, which is another amazing salvation that happens in our life. Where an avenue closes off to us and saves our life. And saves our life by closing itself off to us. God saves us with the word no as well. And it's equally miraculous. So we have to understand that every single thing in our life is a miracle. The yeses are miracles. The no's are equally miracles. The yeses are salvation. The noes are equal salvations. And when we really understand that, when we really grasp that, we'll be able to get past that which we only understand with our rational, finite, mortal selves. And we'll be able to understand that God is there, and that God is there no matter what. God is there absolutely no matter what. And we'll be able to feel his closeness and to celebrate all of the events of our life.